Well, it's always a good day when you have a baptism. And so what, what a joy. And I just want to say uh, thank you to Jessica and to Chris, but to Jessica for her service to our church for these uh, years. And uh, we're so grateful um, for all that she's done in serving in our children's ministry. Um, I was thinking about when Brian was praying at, about our prayer confession about how fear so governs our lives. And, and many of us like to act like fear is not a part of our lives. We're tough, we're invincible, but, but fear does play a pretty large part. And it has some, some pretty significant um, impacts on us because it's one of the things that keeps us isolated from one another. Uh, studies have shown that 35% of Americans over the age of 45 are lonely chronically lonely. And that was before the pandemic. I cannot imagine what it is now. And that loneliness can have a, a lot of factors that contribute to that, but, but one of them is that we're afraid of being known. We're afraid that people might know us, so we, we have this deep, built-in longing that comes from being made in the image of God, where we long for community, we long for intimacy, we, we long to be known and to be loved, but we are terrified of truly being known. Uh, one of the ways this shows up, ironically, is in, uh, is in dating. Uh, you know, we all have this desire to be known and to be loved, and so we want a relationship. And so, uh, you know, in our modern era, it's very hard to connect with that right person, and so many people uh, have used the internet for that. And so online dating now uh, is over a $2 billion a year industry in the United States alone. And it's a great way for people to connect because, because uh, you know, within uh, the time you could go on one date, you could scroll through over 100 profiles of potential people not to date. And so, uh, it, uh, you know, really cuts down time. But, but there's a, a problem, and those of you who've used online dating, you, you know, you know this. There's a problem, and this is the problem. Shocking as it may be, people lie. Uh, in fact, not just a few people lie. It's not just a few people lie on their online dating profiles. Most people lie on their online dating profiles, 53%. And uh, women will typically uh, lie about their appearances. They'll post pictures of them a few years older than, uh, you know, when they're younger. Uh, men will lie about their income and their job performance and different things. And, and so they lie. Now, you, know, you do get the irony of this, right? I mean, you're in love you deeply, but you're afraid that if they know you, they're going to reject you, so you present a false you to, to, to attract them. And so stated in that is the sense that if I showed them the real me, they would never love me. And so I'm going to present a fake me in the hopes that they will love me. But of course, if they love the fake you, they don't love you. And so there's the, the, the problem. Uh, the terrifying truth is we're afraid that if we are known, we cannot be loved. And uh, we're afraid that if, if people actually see us, and so we go through life, not just in dating profiles, but in all sorts of relationships, wearing masks, hiding, only revealing certain parts of ourselves that we want other people to know, presenting the best image of ourselves. And for some, it keeps us isolated and alone because we don't want those intimate friendships. We crave them, but we're afraid if they get to know me, they're not going to love me. And so to avoid the rejection, we avoid getting known. And that's one of the reasons why I think we're terrified of God. You might say, I'm not terrified of God. Well, I, I think many of us are. And there's, there's a reason for this, you know. God is holy. He is perfect. He is, he is altogether lovely and beautiful. And yet God knows us deeply. He doesn't just see what you do. 
He knows what you're thinking. He knows the motives behind those good things that you do, that sometimes you do those good things that other people will praise you for, but you know you're doing them for selfish motives. He, he knows your heart. And so uh, we live with this, this fear of God that he could never really love us if he knows us. And since he knows us, there's no way he could possibly love us. And I mean, why would God ever be attracted to me? Uh, to say he's out of my league is a bit of an understatement. And so I'm sure that's how Zacchaeus felt. Zacchaeus was not an attractive man. <laughs> and I'm not talking about his physical appearance. It has nothing to do with his stature. Zacchaeus was a morally repugnant person. He was an evil man. Uh, he, he was a, a social outcast. Yet of all the people in the crowd that day, Jesus is drawn. He's attracted to Zacchaeus. Uh, and, and, and as he's attracted to Zacchaeus, we see that the love of Jesus for Zacchaeus radically changes Zacchaeus' life forever. But before we can look at Zacchaeus' life change, which is significant, we must first ask, why was Jesus attracted to Zacchaeus in the first place? What drew him to Zacchaeus? So let's begin by looking at the compassion of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. Now, this sounds like a cute little story, you know, and we tell it in our children's uh, uh, groups and, and uh, Sunday school classes. It's a story about a wee little man who wants to uh, see Jesus but can't because the crowd's so large and he's so little, and so he climbs the sycamore tree. And so you have this comical image of this middle-aged rich man. And, and the, the way I picture it is Danny DeVito in the first century version of a three-piece suit. And so this middle-aged, balding, rich man, you know, uh, and he's scurrying up this little tree, and he looks kind of comical, and Jesus kind of walks by, and there's this massive crowd of people, and Jesus kind of walks by and kind of looks up and goes, Zach, you know? I mean, just like, what are you doing? Uh, I have to come to your house. And, and it sounds like a cute, funny story, and, and of course, there is a bit of humor to it, but, but Zacchaeus was anything other than cute and funny. He was an awful man. Uh, he was probably the most despised person in all of Jericho, and deservedly so. We're only told three things about him. We're told that he's short, that he's the chief tax collector, and that he's very rich. Now, there's nothing wrong with being short. That's not an indictment that just gives something to the plot. But the other two are. And the reason is this. We've looked at tax collectors the last few weeks. Tax collectors, as we saw, uh, were, were uh, enemy collaborators. You know, Israel's under Roman occupation, and even though the Jews were given tremendous freedom, uh, it still uh, you know, was something that bothered them greatly uh, because uh, uh, they were under Roman domination. And to think about this, they're God's chosen people. And so rather than being dominated by the world, they're thinking they should be the ones dominating the world. So it was uh, humiliating. And to make matters worse, they're paying taxes to their oppressors, and that money is going to further dominate them. You are actually funding your abuser is what's happening here. And, and not only that, but uh, t tax collectors were known for their dishonesty. They charged taxes on imports and exports going in and out of town. Uh, but their taxes that they charged were not based on what Rome required. They're based on whatever they thought they could get. And so they're essentially extortionists. 
they would look at you and figure out how much they could get, and, and you would have to pay. And um, uh, it, uh, Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector, is the chief extortionist. He is the Tony Soprano of his day. Uh, he is the mob boss. And so he would be rolling around in his first century tricked out Escalade, and everybody's looking at him and go, yeah, he's rich. And the reason he's rich is he's ripping all of us off. They hated this man, and they rightfully hated this man. He was an evil man, enemy collaborator, mob leader, uh, ripping people off with his extortion. And so when Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the tree, and he looks up at him, he doesn't just say, hey, Zacchaeus, I want to talk, because that would mean something completely different. You know, if if, uh, your boss comes into your office and says, I want to talk, that has a certain uh, weight to it. But that's not what Jesus says. He says to Zacchaeus, it is necessary that I come to your house. Uh, I must stay at your house. Jesus doesn't ask Zacchaeus if he can come over. Uh, Jesus does something that is the opposite of what normally happens to Zacchaeus. Jesus presents Zacchaeus with an offer he can't refuse. He says, I am coming over to your house. But why Zacchaeus? I mean, there are a lot of people in the crowd. We know that. There's so many people that Zacchaeus couldn't get through. Surely any number of the fine, upstanding citizens of Jericho would gladly have received Jesus over. Jesus doesn't even say to the crowd, goes, look, whoever wills wants me to come over, I'll come over and talk with you. He doesn't do that. He singles out this one man out of the, the, the crowd that is there, and, and he says, I am coming to your house. You might think that Jesus is drawn to Zacchaeus rather than the rest of the crowd because Zacchaeus shows such initiative. And he does. He shows a whole lot of initiative. He, he climbs a tree. But he's not the only one showing initiative. I mean, there's a whole crowd of people who want to see Jesus. They're all there. The only reason Zacchaeus climbs a tree is because he's short. That's the only reason. Everybody else can see. He can't see. He climbs a tree. So lots of people are showing initiative. Nor was uh, Jesus choosing Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus had a change of heart and was going straight. Uh, That doesn't happen until later. Jesus specifically targets Zacchaeus not because he is good, but because he's bad. He he targets him, he says in verse 10, says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus is a sinner, and he knows it. He is well aware of who he is. He's well aware of what he's, uh, he's done. He knows everybody in the community hates him, and he knows their right to hate him. He's an awful man. He's aware of this. But just as a, a doctor is drawn to those who are sick, Jesus, in his heart of compassion, is drawn to those who are sick and lost in their sin. You know, when I was growing up in Atlanta, uh, the school districts there at that time were a little bit strange. Elementary school went first through seventh grade, and high school was eighth through twelfth grade. And so when I went into eighth grade into high school, my mom started teaching at the elementary school across the street from our house. So all the kids she taught were kids from our neighborhood. Since I was in eighth grade, I knew these kids. And my mom had this um, attraction to the bad boys. And I'm not talking about just the mischievous bad boys, the boys who struggle in the school. I'm talking about the the bad boys, the, the mean, cruel, vandals, bullies. I mean, just awful kids. I hated them you know, (laughs) and uh, they were bullies. 
And she was just drawn to them. And, and, and I couldn't figure out, out why. It was always boys, by the way, never girls. Bad girls, you know, didn't get the same attention. Uh, but she was drawn to them. She was, she was moved towards them. And, and it wasn't because they were, you know, she thought evil was good, thought it was funny. She was drawn to them in their brokenness. And we see something of that in the heart of Jesus. It's not that Jesus, or my mother for that matter, took delight in evil. Rather, Jesus' heart was broken, was broken by their bondage to sin. Notice what he says about Zacchaeus. He says, this man, too, is a son of Abraham. He's a part of God's covenant people. He he is one of God's people, and, and yet look at him. He's a wreck. He's a mess. And he looks at him, and so Jesus is drawn to him because his heart is so full of compassion, he is moved towards him. Zacchaeus' sin does not repulse Jesus. Rather, it's it's like, again, a doctor stopping and seeing a a, a car wreck on the side of the road, and he looks and he sees the, the person who's bloodied and battered, and he just moves towards it. That's how Jesus is towards us in our sin. The 17th century Puritan Thomas Goodwin said that when God looks at his children and their sin, instead of being provoked against you, all his anger is turned on your sin. He says, quote, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease, or as one is to a member of his body that has leprosy, he, he hates not the member, for it's his flesh, but the disease, and that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. What he's saying is, when God looks at you in your sin, he certainly hates the sin. He hates the disease. But that moves him to, to pity and compassion for you because he sees what the sin is doing to you. He, and so Jesus is attracted to Zacchaeus, not in spite of Zacchaeus' sin, but because of it. He sees the son of Abraham's life being destroyed. And instead of, of, of repelling Jesus, it moves Jesus to him like compassion. See, grace is like water. It flows downhill. It goes to the lowest point. Now, you may think that your sin is so great that when Jesus looks at you, he is repulsed by it. And certainly, Jesus does not find sin attractive at all. He died for it. In fact, here's where we see the true evil of sin. And it's because sin is so evil and so destructive and so damaging that when he sees you in it, he moves toward you. He wants to set you free. He wants to make you clean. Because he's not saying, and here's what, uh, the terrible misunderstanding of grace that our culture has. They think, say that grace is saying, see someone in their sin and say, it's okay, it's not that bad, don't worry about it. That is not grace. That is destructive. Jesus looks at you and your sin. Instead of saying, it's okay, don't worry about it, it's not so bad. Jesus looks at you and your sin and says, oh, my heart is broken. My heart is broken for you. And I want to set you free. He's drawn to you in your brokenness because Jesus has a heart of compassion. Your sin is repulsive, but the Son of God longs to set you free. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So what does that mean for us? That means as you look at your sin, what we want to do is we want to hide and and, and to back away and to stay far away from Jesus because we're, we're afraid of the exposure. We're afraid of being seen. But instead, you know, Instead of hiding, because we can't fix us, instead of that hiding us and driving us away from him, we see that he is drawn to us, and therefore we should be drawn to him. 
Christian, he loves you. He wants to make you whole. Uh, those who have not yet put their faith in Christ, Jesus is not turned off by your sin. He's come to set you free. Do not think that you have to clean up yourself first before coming to him. Because you do, you'll never come. In fact, we see this in this next part. Uh, we see next that the transforming power of Jesus' love. The transforming power of Jesus' love. Now, when Jesus invites himself to stay at Zacchaeus' house, it's not, again, like when the, your boss says, hey, I'm going to come to your office. That's not what it is. In fact, in those days, to, to go to someone's home was a, a symbol of acceptance. It's saying, I accept you. I, I value you. I, I, I cherish you as a sign of relationship. So when Jesus says, I must come to your house, Jesus is saying, Zacchaeus, I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to be your friend. And, and that's why everyone is so offended. You're thinking, why is everybody so upset at Jesus just for, for going to man's house? Because by going to his house, Jesus is saying, this man is my friend. And they're saying, how in the world can Jesus, if he is, is who he claims to be, ever be friends with a man like Zacchaeus. Because Zacchaeus is evil. Everybody knows that. And while everyone is complaining about Zacchaeus eating with this evil mob lord, Zacchaeus makes this remarkable statement. He gives away half of his wealth. Now remember, he's a very rich man. He gives away half of, not just his bank account, half of all that he has, he gives to the poor. Uh, and then, with the remaining money he has, the remaining half, he says, anyone I've defrauded, I'm going to pay back fourfold. At that very moment, he is bankrupting himself. He, the, this rich man suddenly becomes poor. You know, before, money was his only concern. After all, that's the only reason anyone would become a tax collector. You don't become a tax collector because it helps you move up in society. You don't become a tax collector because it helps you win friends. There is one reason and one reason only why a Jew would become a tax collector in the Roman Empire, and that is money. That was his only concern. And yet here he is giving away his wealth. What can account for his change? Is he doing these good works to to earn Jesus' approval? Is he, is he trying to show, God, I'm really serious this time. I'm going to get my act together and let me prove it to you how serious I am? No, not at all. Notice the order of events, and this is critical. Look at the order. He is not accepted because he behaves. He behaves because he's accepted. He does not repent in order to get the love of God. He receives the love of God and therefore, he repents. This is an absolutely critical, critical thing to see. That we do not go and by our works, even by the work of repentance, uh, do these things uh, to, in order that God would accept us. Rather, faith comes first, receiving the love of God, and it's that love of God that results in repentance. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's that faith in Christ, that love of Christ, that results in the life change. And so, uh, this is what the, the Apostle Paul says. He says in Romans 2.4 that, that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It is not our repentance that leads to God's kindness. So, we do not change our behavior in order to get grace. Rather, grace leads to a change of behavior. Again, this is critical because as long as you think you have to clean yourself up before you can come to God. 
As long as you believe you have to, to uh, turn away from your sin first and then turn to God in faith, you will never come because you can't. You cannot clean up you. You cannot do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And as long as you believe, you must show how serious you are about your faith and clean yourself up. You will never experience God's grace. Um, that was a wonderful uh, old hymn. In fact, it's been redone by, uh, I think about 20 years ago, by Indelible Grace. Uh, and it's, it's called Come Ye Sinners. And it's, uh, it's an invitation hymn inviting those who are in bondage to sin to come. And I'm not going to read the whole hymn for you, but I do want to highlight the third and the fourth verse. It says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is that you feel your need of him. Come you weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall, or bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. That captures the gospel. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Because Zacchaeus sees and experiences this amazing love, this amazing love of Jesus, it leads to a radical transformation of his life. Before, uh, before Zacchaeus meets Jesus, he has one mission in life, and that is money. It's to obtain as much money as he could, any way that he could. His universe had one sole occupant himself. He's determined to do whatever it took to make himself happy, even if it meant robbing his neighbor, betraying his country, or, or selling out his own soul. He would do anything necessary to save himself. But when the grace of God enters Zacchaeus' life, when it enters his life, he changes. He, he abandons his mission of self-service and joins with Jesus in his mission. And that's what repentance ultimately is. Repentance is that, that turning away from your own mission, your own agenda, and turning to Christ and following him and following his agenda. And true faith in Christ always results in repentance, always. And so what we see here is it's, it's not just, by the way, and I think this is, again, important for, for many who've, who've grown up in the church. Repentance is not merely turning away for the bat, from the bad things you've done. That's, that's certainly part of it. Repentance is not merely saying, I'm sorry for the bad things I've done. I'm going to stop it. Again, that's part of it. But repentance is not only turning away from the bad things you've done, but turning to Jesus. It's, it's abandoning your mission, but taking up his mission. And so what we see with the with this with, with Zacchaeus. He, he not only pays back the people he's ripped off. Great. He also, he also gives money to the poor. Half of it. He, he also begins to see himself as not living for himself. He now has a mission, and he's about the mission of God. Even as Christ came to, to heal our broken world, Zacchaeus now sees his mission to be a part of healing that broken world, uh, using his wealth, using his means, uh, to, to be part of what God is doing. And, and that's how you know you get the gospel. When, when suddenly God's mission is more important than your mission. When suddenly your life is aligned with this mission. And that's the transforming power of Jesus' love. When your heart is gripped by the grace of God, then your heart becomes aligned with God's mission. And, and, and it changes everything. It changes everything. Sarah grew up in a 
very wealthy home in uh, northern Virginia in the suburbs, and her father was a, a lawyer, a very profitable lawyer. They had the, the very large home. Uh, their parents had uh, uh, Porsches each. The dad had the 911, the mom the 928. The girls at this time, they wore, and you'll remember this era, their Laura Ashley dresses to the, uh, to the junior women's cotillion uh, ball and uh, attended white glove etiquette school. On the outside, they looked like the perfect well-to-do family. Uh, they had it all together. Life, family life was intense, though. Rules were important. Etiquette was important. Appearances were extremely important. Sarah said that her dad would, would blow up at the slightest provocation. So when she was at home as a little girl, when she heard her dad's Porsche pulling into the garage, she would run to her room and stay there for fear of how, how he might react. That all changed when she was 12 years old. Her mom came to her room and said, we're having a family meeting. She goes, well, I know what family meetings are about. We've never had one, but her friends' parents have had family meetings, and it meant that the parents were getting a divorce. So she went down to the den with great fear. Her sister had magically appeared from college, which was several hours away. Her dad looked like an absolute train wreck. Her mom said, we're not getting a divorce, but dad has something he wants to say to you. Her father spoke, and he began to weep openly, and that's something he, he had never done in her whole life. And he confessed that he had taken money out of a trust fund. It was a trust fund set up by family for their disabled child. And he was the manager of that trust fund, and he'd taken out some money, first a little bit, because he was going to pay it back, but then more and more. And, uh, and so soon it became a lot. And the next day, uh, the dad, um, you know, just um, confessed to his crime. He uh, told them what he'd done. He told them that uh, he thought nobody was going to be hurt, but he realized, he said, I've got to confess. And so he went in and confessed. And, and, and remarkably, the family that he ripped off did not press charges. Uh, instead, they, they just said, you've got to pay the money back. But he was disbarred. He lost his his uh, law practice. They had to move out of the big house. They got rid of the cars. Her mom started doing odd jobs. Her mom, who'd always been this wealthy lawyer's wife, started uh, changing sheets at the nursing home, and she was a janitor at their church. But suddenly, all the rules were gone. There was no more keeping up appearances. Her dad was instantly better. Uh, his explosive anger was gone. He, he became a better person. Her mom's transformation was just as radical. Uh, she started caring about suffering people. One day she packed up some bagged lunches and went to feed some, some homeless people downtown under the bridge. And that simple act turned into this large charity where she literally began feeding uh, with others thousands of people. She even went to Rwanda during the genocide to help out people in need. Well, years later, Sarah went to her mom and she said, why did dad turn himself in? And she said, well, one day your sister wrote him a letter from college. And she said that she loved him and she was proud of him. And I came home and I found him sobbing in the fetal position on the floor. And he said, I can't do this anymore. I've made all the wrong choices and I'm ready to make the right ones. And then he confessed and he told us that night. The love of a daughter led to a man confessing to a crime. He repented and his life changed. Now if the love of a daughter can do that for him, imagine what the love of God 
can do for you. When we begin to grasp the love of God, that He truly loves us, that He's drawn to us in our brokenness and in our pain, it will set you free. You no longer have to hide. You no longer have to keep up appearances. You no longer have to pretend like you have it all together because God knows you don't, and yet He loves you. And when you grasp that, you no longer have to live for yourself. You can live for Him in His kingdom, in His glory, and you can be free. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You that You are a God who loves Your people, and You love us deeply. Oh, Lord, we confess that we're afraid. We're afraid that you don't. We're afraid that, that, that we have to cover ourselves up, that we have to hide, that we have to present to you good work so that you'll like us. And, and all the time, you, you see in us that, that we're a wreck and that we need a Savior. Oh, Lord, help us to see that. Help us to see that we're like Zacchaeus, that we're a mess. And so, Lord, may we see that even like Zacchaeus, you love us deeply. So, Lord, give us the faith to believe in your love. And as we believe in your love, may we turn from our sin and may we turn and join with you in the work that you're doing in Colorado Springs, the West, and the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.